Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. Since coronary artery disease is a leading cause of death for patients with diabetes, should we routinely conduct cardiac screening for these patients? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Whitland, Associate Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of the Endocrine Metabolism Division at the University of Rochester in New York. Dr. Whitland, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, how are you? It's often said that patients with diabetes have so-called silent heart disease or that diabetes is a coronary artery disease equivalent. How common really is coronary disease in diabetic patients? Coronary disease is extremely common in patients with diabetes. I think that the notion that diabetes is a coronary risk equivalent is mainly based on a study that was published in 1999 by Dr. Stephen Hafner, which was the so-called East-West study, Mm -hmm. which was a Finnish study, and it was really an observational study. Subsequent studies have not confirmed diabetes as a risk equivalent. To give you more detail, in the so-called East-West study, it was found that patients with diabetes had a substantially increased incidence of cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality. And it was not surprising that patients who had had a previous myocardial infarction and diabetes had a much higher incidence of recurrent cardiovascular disease than did patients Mm -hmm. who did not have diabetes. Mm -hmm. What was surprising in that study was that the incidence of cardiovascular disease in patients with diabetes who had never had an MI Mm -hmm was virtually identical to patients who did not have diabetes who had previously had an MI. So the dogma at that time was that patients with diabetes had the same risk of having a heart attack as someone who had already had a heart attack. Uh So that the incidence of fatal and non-fatal MI in that study, if you had no previous MI, were 4%. If you had had an MI and no diabetes, 19%. If you had diabetes and no MI, 20%, so virtually identical. If you had diabetes and an MI, it was 45%. Mm. And that's the dogma that has been carried forward and essentially was pretty much sustained with some minor differences in their 18-year follow-up that was published in 2005. That has been questioned, for example, in an article in 2007 in Diabetes Care by Shaw. And also in a study, and I hope I'm not butchering his name, by Dr. Bugalaptia, which mm-hmm. was published in Diabetic Medicine in 2009, he did a meta-analysis and showed that diabetes was not a risk equivalent. Not being a risk equivalent doesn't mean that there's not a high prevalence of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, because there is. Mm-hmm. And of course, somewhere between two-thirds and 75% of deaths in patients with diabetes due to cardiovascular disease. So it certainly is very prevalent, but the idea that it is a risk equivalent does not seem to have the support we thought it did. Is there any truth to the old dogma that diabetics are more likely to have no symptoms or atypical symptoms when they do have ischemia? Again, it's not homogeneous throughout the literature, but I think the preponderance of evidence is that patients with diabetes have more silent ischemia than patients who do not have diabetes. And given this high prevalence and perhaps that it may not be clinically apparent, can you tell us a little bit about your dyad study addressing whether we should be looking at these patients specifically for coronary disease? Yes, well, in our dyad study, because really the people who initiated this were Yale. The diabetologists there was my friend and colleague, Silvio Inzuki, and the cardiologists there were Franz Bockers and Larry Young. That having been said, 
we sat down, and I think it's really important to understand that we sat down and discussed this in the late 90s. Uh-huh. And so it requires some historical perspective when we get to the punchline in 2009. And the question was, given that there's a high prevalence of silent myocardial ischemia in patients with type 2 diabetes, the question was, A, can we substantiate that using nuclear stress testing? Mm-hmm. And second of all, if we do that, what is the prevalence and does it make a difference to know that? And so what we did was, after putting together the protocol, using 1990s myocardial ischemia data. We enrolled people between July of 2000 and August of 2002, and we enrolled actually over 1,000 patients, half of which had a denison systemivity with SPECT and half of which had no testing. And their follow-up, we simply sent the results to their primary care physicians and let them determine what they were going to do with those data. And then we did a five-year follow-up. We have either five-year follow-up of those who had been screened and a five-year follow-up of those who had not been screened as a control group. And what we found was of the 522 asymptomatic patients who were screened, 22% had abnormalities on their adenosine septimibi spect. And that, I imagine, was a little lower than you might have expected to find? Well, that was pretty much what we expected. Ah, okay. 73% of them had perfusion abnormalities, and about a quarter had non-perfusion abnormalities. And that we published in 2004. This was important data that, at least by nuclear stress testing, Mm -hmm. 22% of it totally asymptomatic patients, these are patients you just have walk into your office and feel perfectly fine, had abnormal specs. And what was also interesting, that the only classic predictor that we would think when we did multivariate analysis was abnormal cardiac autonomic function testing. Interesting. So the, the more traditional risk factors were not nearly as predictive as that. Yeah. Now, I think that some data or some information, because it's not really data, on how these patients were ascertained. Obviously, this was a multi-center trial, and a lot of patients were taken out of diabetes clinics. We have our particular center, and we recruited a disproportionate number of the patients. But a lot of the centers recruited patients from their diabetes clinics and were being managed by experts Mm -hmm. in diabetes, and that may have influenced the patient population. We actually got most of ours from advertising from the community. Okay, so the patient population was already being managed by specialists. Yeah. By and large. And their diabetes control was substantially better than we had anticipated. The follow-up study three years later, what we found was that about the same number of people, a little bit less, had abnormal specs. But what was interesting is there was marked resolution of some of these abnormalities so that over time, these patients actually got better in terms of, at least from a nuclear medicine point of view. Mm -hmm. The other thing, because we said, how did this happen? What we found was if you look at either ACE inhibitors, statins, or aspirin, there was a progressive increase in the percent of patients who were on these drugs over the three years of follow-up. So it's possible that this was influenced by the fact that in the current decade, we do a better job of managing risk factors. So medical management did result in improvements, at least based on the nuclear medicine studies. We had unexpected resolution of ischemia in almost 80% of the patients who had previously had silent ischemia with diabetes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Whitland, Associate Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of the Endocrine Metabolism Division at the University of Rochester in New York about screening asymptomatic diabetics for coronary artery disease. So medical management seems to be helpful. Did the presence of ischemia on these tests seem to influence either the management that their primary care doctors 
put these patients through or other outcomes? In terms of treatment, we don't have well-controlled data, but what we do have is, the, as I mentioned, the percent on ACE inhibitors, the percent on statins, the percent on aspirin, and clearly there was an impact. But moreover, when we followed the group, if we looked at the overall incidence of cardiac events, there was really no statistically significant difference at five years between the group that had been screened and the group that was not. However, in the patients who had moderate or large defects on their SPECT, there was an increase, P.005, increase in cardiac events compared to those that did not. However, and here's the problem, when you look at it, the overall group did not show a statistically significant difference. And I think, we think, that this is due to the fact, and and I'm as guilty as the next guy because I was involved when we were planning the protocol. We used 1990 numbers for the incidence of cardiac events. In fact, the incidence that we had in the study was 0.6% per year, which is remarkably low. And so really we had, a, in retrospect, probably the study was underpowered, but certainly our data could not justify routine screening of asymptomatic patients. Now that may be that we need to refine the population that we screen. If I can move outside of our data. Right, is there other data that comments on this question? Well, coronary calcium appears to be a more sensitive risk stratifier, but a less specific risk stratifier than the nuclear medicine study. Mm -hmm. So the strategy that my colleague here at the University of Rochester, uh, Ron Schwartz, and I have been considering is looking at a strategy of screening with coronary calcium. And if the coronary calcium score is over 400, to go ahead and then do myocardial perfusion imaging and see if that enriches the population. So I think that right now that's our current consideration, and there's, there's a lot of data that is suggestoid in that regard. A recent article, for example, from the VA study that was published, and I'm sure that the world is as confused as the rest of us mm-hmm. in terms of how tightly do you control blood sugar in patients with diabetes to right. prevent cardiovascular disease in view of the ACCORD trial, the advanced trial, the VA study that have all come out. And one thing that I found interesting from the VA study was that if you risk stratified by coronary calcium scores, and this is a secondary analysis, the groups with the lowest coronary calcium scores seem to do the best with aggressive control. And the group with the highest coronary calcium scores seem to not benefit from aggressive control. Interesting. So there may be some direction in terms of how tightly you want to control the sugars based on coronary calcium. Right. And uh, also in the ACCORD trial, the patients who had been better controlled seemed to do better coronary-wise with aggressive control than the group that was really poorly controlled. I think there are a couple other studies that bear on this because there are two studies really in the literature that look at patients who ostensibly are new-onset diabetes patients. One of them is the UKPDS trial. It's been published now for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And the other is the DCCT edict trial, where they took new-onset type 1 patients and randomized them to aggressive versus conventional control. The study went on from 1983 to 1993, and the study was stopped. And that's why we all think that Aggressive control of type 1 diabetes reduces complications because they proved that very convincingly in the DCCT. The EDIC arm is the 10-year follow-up. And in both the UKPDS trial and in the EDIC trial, so a type 2 study, new-onset patients, a type 1 study, new-onset patients, they were followed for an additional 10 years. And they did what you would expect. They regressed to the mean. So their blood sugars that were less well-controlled 
tended to come down. The ones that were aggressively controlled tended to come up. And the two groups had the same blood sugar for 10 years after the studies were over. Mm -hmm. In both those studies, and most impressively in the DCCT edict, aggressive control reduced the incidence of myocardial infarction 10 years afterwards with the same blood sugars for 10 years. And, you know, if you're in the United Kingdom, they're calling this a legacy effect. And if you're in the United States, they're calling it metabolic memory. But both of them, I think, pertain to this, and they're interesting sidelights. Is there something that we can conclude for practicing physicians based on some of this data in terms of screening diabetics? Uh, we, I guess, mostly see type 2 diabetes. My understanding is procedures are better for symptoms. Procedures are better for left main or triple vessel disease. But otherwise, we're doing aggressive medical management. So why do a study on an asymptomatic diabetic? To my mind, one would prefer to find these patients before they have their MI rather than after. Mm -hmm. especially since a substantial percentage of people with first MI die. So I think that there's certainly justification, at least to pursue this. Now, who should be screened? Based on our data, it's very difficult to say. What I certainly would say is in practice, and, and I see patients every day, if you're going to prescribe routine walking, the mm -hmm. 150 minutes a week of walking, I think that there are no data at present that would allow us to recommend based on what's published, doing anything more than saying, go ahead, go walk. It's good for you. I think if someone is a type A and they're a patient who's either going to go to the gym and work out or do nothing, that's where I think the question of do you screen these patients or just let them go to the gym mm -hmm. becomes a relevant question, especially if 22% of them are running around with unknown coronary artery disease. The data don't answer the question if it's cost effective. And based on diet alone, it's not cost effective to screen everybody. On the other hand, I think if someone is going to go work out, it behooves them to have a screening test. And my recommendation would be, if possible, to screen them with coronary calcium scores. If they have a good coronary calcium score, go ahead. If they have a high coronary calcium score, then I would say go ahead and get a nuclear stress test. Well, I want to thank Dr. Stephen Whitland. Very, very interesting. We'll be watching for further data that can help us guide our treatment of these patients. Reach MD online, on demand, and on air. Please also visit us at ReachMD.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.